Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. All right, Sharon. Well, welcome back. I'm here. Yeah, glad to be here today. I know. Me Much too. rather be in here than outside. Oh my gosh, it's 25 degrees this morning. Whenever right, I left, some people from... are making fun of you for saying 25 degrees. You know, it's it might be negative 15 <laughs> in other places. Well, where my are. girls live, it it is. Yeah, but... well, we actually went to the mountains this weekend and woke up yesterday morning, mm-hmm. and it was snowing. Oh my gosh, I bet it was gorgeous though. My daughter said she had been wishing for snow and it was kind of weird. Where we were was the only place that got snow, really? no other place outside of it. Well, so she thinks was, her wish came true. Well, it, it well it kind of did. Yeah. You know, I was in Arizona with Carol Deutscher, Tracy Castleman, and Jackie Rolls this past weekend, and it was seventy degrees oh, there. I were going to say it was snowing. I was like, "How much wine did you girls drink?" Really? <laughs> well, maybe a little. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sharon, I think that this is going to be one of the most interesting podcasts that we have done. Uh, I absolutely agree with you, and we've got to thank Sandy Ouellette for putting us on this one, because whenever she talked about it, and we were just so thrilled that our guests agreed to grace us with their presence. So we're going to be talking about today CRNAs and antitrust victories, but should I dare say maybe the only victory Hmm. Well, I'm sure they'll let us know. Well, you know, in Oltz versus St. Peter's Hospital, nurse anesthetist Tafford Oltz, and I'm going to call him Taff from here on out, proved in a federal court in Montana that hospital administrators and anesthesiologists conspired to dismiss him from clinical privileges. For two decades, Taff and CRNA wife Lori fought for their rights, and eventually won, becoming the only nurse anesthetist in history to win a case based on antitrust law. And as you guys can understand, this is extremely important in history for CRNAs. And we're honored to have with us today both Taff and Lori to tell their story. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your education and and nurse anesthesia programs attended. And I guess because now you you live in Montana and how you got to Montana. Taff, you want to start us off? Yes, please. 
my background was serving as a hospital corpsman in the Navy and then obtaining my uh, registered nursing degree via Ventura College in Ventura, California, and then my anesthesia training at the Mayo Clinic School of Nurse Anesthesia. Uh, Lori graduated from St. Mary's School of Nursing, immediately followed by Mayo Program of Nurse Anesthetist in Rochester, Minnesota. We met at Mayo, we married in Rochester, and in 1970 we ended up in Bozeman, Montana because of Montana State University, the mountains, and the hunting and fishing. So you were laughing at us when Sharon said it was cold here, weren't you? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> no, it's going to be 40 degrees here today. Sorry, Sharon. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> How does that happen? It's just not fair. <laughs> so you got to Montana. You're now married, newly married in, in Montana? We married in 1969 and just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, my wow. gosh. Wow. Congratulations, guys. Anastasia you. kept you together. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us about your employment setting in Montana. Yeah, over the from 1970 and over the next several years, Lori and I attended Montana State University while providing anesthesia. I obtained a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and covered scheduled days in rural hospitals. And one of us would work full-time with two MDs providing coverage for the larger Bozeman Deaconess Hospital. In 1974, I was contacted by a vascular surgeon at St. Peter's Community Hospital, a 120-bed hospital, which was approximately 100 miles away in Helena, Montana, to provide services. I applied for medical staff privileges, obtaining a billing contract with the hospital, as CRNAs at that time did not have direct billing available to them. And as the request for cases kept increasing, finally it was a full-time job and in 1976 we relocated to Helena. At that time I was working independently with two MD anesthesiologists and one D anesthesia provider. Lori was then working out of Helena and scheduled days to cover other rural hospitals while being mom to our two young children. When I started working at St. Peter's Community Hospital, there was no formal anesthesia call schedule. It was the responsibility of the operating surgeon to call the MDAs and find one who was willing to come in and do their emergency case. In 1976, I started a call schedule. The surgeon also selected who would provide anesthesia for their elective cases. Prior to our move to Helena, when I was on call, I stayed at a local motel. There was also no one providing pain relief for OB patients for labor and delivery. I was contacted by a friend who was a representative for Omita and suggested that I contact the chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Colorado in Denver. I called Dr. Antonio Aldretti and he agreed to having Lori and I come to the university and work with Dr. John McDonald in OB learning labor and delivery epidurals. Lori and I each spent two months at different times for training. When I returned to St. Peter's Community Hospital, I offered to share what I had learned at the University of Colorado and start an OB call schedule. 
None of the anesthesiologists were interested, so I started my own labor and delivery OB coverage. As the caseloads increased, I was the only person providing labor epidurals in some types of regional blocks. The following year, I returned to the University of Colorado and spent two months working with the director of the pain clinic at the University of Colorado, Dr. Katie Wood, learning pain management. When I returned to St. Peter's Community Hospital, I started pain management services. The MD anesthesiologist took me off the call schedule and stated that this was a physician call schedule. I informed the surgeons that I had my own call schedule. I posted it in surgery. You have to remember that the surgeon's office would call the hospital, the operating room, and they would either request specific anesthesia or whoever else was available. I also worked with the lone MD, Dr. David Bossler, who also provided surgery and some anesthesia. Dr. Bossler was, had almost completed an anesthesia residency at Virginia Mason Clinic in Seattle, but dropped out because his wife had post-delivery complications. Dr. Bossler liked me and took me under his wing and taught me many different regional and techniques for surgery and anesthesia and acute pain management. I can remember one specific case, a 90-year-old who was not in good health for a gallbladder. I did intercostal celiac plexus blocks, and the patient was awake during the procedure and walked from the uh, operating room to the recovery room. So was he a surgeon? You said he didn't finish his anesthesia residency, but he did some surgery. So what was he? He did take a partial surgical residency and then switch to anesthesia. Well, that's a nice little bit. These were family practitioners. And at this time in Montana, you have to remember that there were a lot of family practice physicians who were doing minor procedures. They Uh were doing TNAs, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. They were doing hemorrhoidectomy. So when he wasn't doing a case that was one of his patients, why then he selected me for his anesthesia. Hmm. Well, I guess Uh, that makes sense because I know family practitioners used to deliver all the babies too. Right. My sister was delivered by a family practitioner. So that makes sense. Uh, By this time, this was probably 1978, a third MD anesthesiologist arrived who on arrival informed the vascular surgeon that I work with that the use of CRNA was medical malpractice. Hmm. Uh, The surgeon, Dr. Jack McMahon's response was immediate and not favorable to the MD anesthesiologist. (laughs) Fourth MD anesthesiologist was recruited by the existing anesthesiologist. Based on surgeon and patient requests, my percentage of the caseload remained at between 28 and 30 percent with four MDs and one other MD and myself as independent providers. So I've got 30 percent of the total cases being done, but there were five other providers. Wow. How did a CRNA, wow, I mean, <laughs> how did you feel confident to do that, Taff? I mean, you were just a CRNA. Oh, I mean, my gosh. Wow. Well, I was a CRNA that wanted to practice anesthesia, <laughs> and I spent a long time there. When A quick example was Helena was 90 miles or 100 miles from Bozeman, where we lived from 74 to 76. 
Mm-hmm. My typical day would be that I would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd drive the 100 miles to the hospital, Wow! get there by 6, would see pre-ops for the day, post-ops for the day before, before they were discharged, would start our, our cases at 8 o'clock, I would be there till in the operating room, usually till 4. At 4 o'clock, I'd go back and see the post-ops from that day, look at any material for the for the cases that were coming up the, the following day, and then I'd drive back to Bozeman. I would get to Bozeman about 8 o'clock at night uh, to 9 o'clock, have something to eat and go to bed, and I repeated that almost every day for two years. Well, that's the secret to 50 years of marriage. You didn't see each other. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. <laughs> Well, you know. God bless you. Sharon, maybe that's your secret, too. Maybe, You're gone all the time. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I'm only 37 years, but I'm catching up. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were only 37. I well, you, you know, well, <laughs> only in my dreams. So what what changed that led to the antitrust violation? It sounds like you've got the market cornered. So what happened to the market? Well, the market stayed the same because I was busy. I, I made myself available I was, you know, good at what I did, and the surgeons and the doctors requested me more than they requested them. Wow. What changed was when I returned to St. Peter's following my pain management experience, you know, I asked the anesthesiologist, I said, do you want to, you know, start a a pain clinic or treat patients in the emergency room? An example would be for fractured ribs and do intercostal blocks. And they said, no, we weren't interested in doing this. So I would do it on my own. It just meant that I was going to be busier and I was going to work harder. And they didn't like that. They tried to stop me from doing everything. They, they said there was an anesthesia machine available that the hospital owned. And they said, well, this is the hospital and the anesthesiologist said, well, this is just for the anesthesiologist. You can't use it anymore. So I went out and I bought my own anesthesia machine. Oh, my God. This machine is just ours. Wait, wait, wait now, Taff. Who paid for that anesthesia machine? Clearly, you paid for yours. Did the hospital buy their machine or did they buy it? The The hospital had one machine and each one of the anesthesiologists had their own machine. Okay. But, uh, you know, they did not want me to use their machine. Ah. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, Taff, this story takes a little turn, and I understand it came down to a folder, a folder that was found, and you did some things with it, and why don't you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, the MDs, even though I was supposed to be a member of the Department of Anesthesia, the MDs excluded me from department meetings. How they did this was they decided that the anesthesia meetings were going to be held at one of the local one of the anesthesiologist homes, and I was not invited. And they removed me from the call schedule. So what did I do? Since the surgeons, I had the surgeons call me directly. I noted that one of the they said, "Well, you're not available." And then the surgeons would, say, I, the next day, they said, "Well, I had a case for you, but they told me you weren't available." I said, "No, I was available." Wow. So I noticed that the MDs would frequently carry around a, a thick manila folder, and one of them would have it one day, and maybe next week somebody else would have it. And so I, you know, I just didn't 
didn't pay much attention to it. And then one night, or in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock, I got called to the hospital to go do an OB epidural. And I went into the change room and to put scrubs on, and here was the vanilla folder laying on, on a bench. So I picked up the folder, and I glanced through it, and I thought, oh, man, my name is all over this. So when the, when, when the epidural was in, I took the folder home. Lori and I looked at the contents, and then we photocopied the entire folder. And then I went back to the hospital, and I returned the folder to the locker room where it was. Folder itself was a two-inch thick file of letters between the anesthesiologist and a blueprint plant on how to get rid of olds. There were copies of letters and presentations to the hospital CEO to eliminate my billing contract and obtain an exclusive contract for anesthesia services. The four anesthesiologists would form Helena Anesthesia Associates. The anesthesiologist had prepared detailed data on how their individual caseloads would increase when they got rid of the CRNA. There was also a multiple-page presentation to the board entitled, Does Helena Need Nurse Anesthesia? The underlying repeated theme was to obtain an exclusive contract because the courts had never held that a hospital exclusive contract was illegal. We did not share with anyone except our legal counsel that we had a copy of the folder and the documents contained in the folder. So what are some, can you share some of the things that you read any more in depth than what you just did? I know you may be bound by some things, but for instance, what did it say? I'll let Lori answer part of this. Yeah, he throws you on the spot there, right? It's oh, yeah. it's to get rid of him, but he's going to let you tell it. I like it. Go ahead, Lori. Okay. <laughs> um, the folder had a lot of things, and it was a lot of detail, and it was really kind of sad that adults could act this way, but they did. And this was definitely, these letters were dated. One, they were even communicating with the last anesthesiologist who was still in his residency program. And he was part of this. Mm. Uh, we were pretty shocked. They had put a lot of pressure on a lot of board members. They tried to interrupt his billing contract. The letters were there that they'd written to the CEO. It was a pretty big deal. Mm. <laughs> we were pretty shocked. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time, you could not bill, CRNAs could not bill independently for anesthesia. So I came up with a, a contract with the hospital, an agreement that I would bill the hospital and the hospital would take 5% mm-hmm. of the gross receipts for bad debt. And it was profitable for the hospital and for me. Mm-hmm. And I would submit a bill every day, the following day, and then at the month I'd summarize it and send it to the hospital and the hospital would deduct the 5% and uh, send me the rest. Well, this was the only way you could survive being an independent CRNA since Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Medicare, uh, and most of the private insurance companies did not represent or agree to independent billing by CRNAs. So let me ask you, how did it feel to look at them every day (laughs) knowing that they were trying to get rid of you? 
How did you do that? My God, that must have taken a wheel of steel. You know, it did, but I wasn't going to let him win. I decided that I had all the support from the surgeons, from the OB people, from pain management, and from patients, because every case, as I explained earlier, was either by patient request or surgeon request. There were no cases. They did not consider me an employee, and they did not give me any cases. So I knew that I was just, I wasn't going to let them beat me down. It was tough living with them and going in, but I just did my job, and I pursued it, and uh, I knew that it was something that if you're good at what you do and if you love what you're doing, I couldn't let them throw me out. So, Lori, you see the folder. What was your reaction? My initial reaction was pretty simple. I thought, and I told Taft, this has got to be illegal. (laughs) (laughs) About a few weeks later, there was a notice in the local paper. We lived in Helena, the capital, about the opening of an antitrust division office. And there was a little bit on there about what antitrust was. And I went down to the office. I got a bunch of information. And in several weeks, I had established relationships with attorneys in the Kansas Department Division of Antitrust, the Colorado Division, and via the FTC, the Division of Antitrust in Washington, D.C. And these attorneys were fantastic, and they gave us a lot of information. All you really want to know, (laughs) antitrust for dummies, uh, we got all sorts of documents. They also gave us all the case citations in which hospital-exclusive contracts had been challenged, and they lost. Uniformly, the courts were upholding all hospital-exclusive contracts that were challenged. Hmm. Um, So I went to the law library. We had a very good law library in the Capitol, and I pulled all the cases. And I read the summary of the facts that the court had written down and the summary of the ethical law. And I understood why all those cases lost, Hmm. because they didn't meet the requirements of the law. And I had a pretty good idea that our case was different. In December of 79, I was down in Denver, and I talked with the lead attorney there at their department of antitrust. He asked a lot of questions. I gave him the answers. And at the end of that conversation, he said to me, if you have what you say you have, you have one hell of an antitrust case. Mm. That attorney kept in contact with us, and he later, when he left that division and went into private practice, he offered services in our case. Wow. So, Lori, why don't you explain to our listeners kind of the big picture of what antitrust litigation is and what creates the perfect storm for this type of litigation? We used that perfect storm reference one in a lecture. Uh, It was a popular movie and a a book that detailed how three very different weather fronts merged together in the North Atlantic and created the storm of the century. It was a disaster. It's a great movie, by the way. Yeah, it was a great movie. And, And it's a little bit, there's a lot of details in there and a lot of the work that the weather people did to first decide, my God, this is going to be a catastrophic storm. Antitrust is kind of like that. There are three very essential things you need to have an antitrust violation. The first is market power. The original Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890 addressed very specifically the monopolies, the trust, 
and the cartels that were dominating huge segments of the economy. They were big, big enterprises. And these common things, they all had market power, and they had enough power that they could get rid of competition, and they had enough power that they could really damage the consumer. The second aspect of antitrust violation is that the defendants have to engage in prohibited conduct, and that conduct includes um, price fixing, bid rigging, conspiracy, boycott, and time arrangements. That conspiracy is simply when two or more competitors make an agreement to do something that's anti-competitive. The boycott is a ganging up and a refusal to deal and uh, be reasonable with a competitor. And those can go both ways. They can be vertical where all the competitors are on the same level or horizontal, or they can be vertical where they actually the competitors will go above them and involve somebody that is essential to that competitors that they want to eliminate to their survival. And the tying arrangement is when a business with a market power in one area will add something to that. They'll attach, they'll tie another product that normally the consumer could buy separately. And a tying arrangement is something that can fit a hospital-exclusive contract. When they, you, if you want to go to that hospital, they decide which anesthesia services or pathology or radiology services you'll have. Well, that hadn't changed and much today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's exactly and the way it is. Third, component, third thing you got to prove. you got to prove that a competition was damaged, like a, you got kicked out of an area. And you've got to prove that that hurt the consumer, that there was damage to them, uh, higher prices and a decrease in quality or types of services. It's normal in antitrust suits that the trial is actually bifurcated. The first aspect of that trial will be proving liability. See, all three components in the antitrust violation have to be proved. Monopoly power, that they engaged in prohibited conduct, and there was actual damage to the consumer and uh, competition. After that, the jury can decide on the damages to be awarded. After the jury decides the damages, then the court will automatically apply a treble. That's the punitive that's applied by law. And antitrust is uh, kind of different in a way that no matter how involved you are, you can have a very minor involvement in an antitrust violation, but you can be held liable for all the damages. And antitrust is also um, pretty stern in that if you only prove a dollar worth in damages, and that was uh, in a NFL case where the jury awarded one dollar in damages, but it triggered all attorney's fees and costs for the plaintiffs, and that was in the millions. Mm. But there's problems in antitrust because a lot of the courts are not familiar with antitrust. In Montana, there had only been one prior antitrust case that was a husband and wife that co-owned a logging company. And the trial judge in that case became the judge in our case. He was um, actually retired, and they pulled him in because he's the only one that had done an antitrust case. And he had only done one. Wow. He had done one. He had done one, so he's the expert now. Yes, you're the expert now. that's, That's kind of the way it is today. And a lot of legal counsel 
don't really understand antitrust. That's not their thing. It's a very specialized area. For example, our uh, legal counsel was doing a deposition on the CEO of the hospital, and they asked him about the hospital's uh, market power, their market share. And the hospital's defense attorney just jumped up and said, what does that have to do with anything? Hmm. Well, we started investigating this from, I looked at, we're trying to establish market power because that was the weak point in most of these other cases. But from a public record, a public filed certificate of need, and remember at this time, Califano required hospitals, when they wanted to a change in service or add new services, they had to get a certificate of need and show that it wasn't a duplication of services of, of another one across town. So I started investigating and I found that a, a public file certificate from St. Peter's Hospital of a need application for an MRI. So they had already established the market power, so we knew what the geographic service area was of the hospital. And St. Peter's had a market power near 84%. The nearest hospital, which was providing similar services, not in every aspect, but similar services, was in Great Falls, Montana, which was 70 miles away. And from the folder, we had documentation that the physician anesthesiologist engaged in a conspiracy and boycott of, the, of CRNA services. Finally, the anesthesiologist went to the board and CEO and threatened to leave the hospital in mass, which was the boycott, if they did, weren't granted an exclusive contract. All four and, of them. Ex- <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, well... Four anesthesiologists and the one MD, but the MD did, who was Dr. David Bossler, did not become a part of that initially. So the hospital contract is a tying arrangement that ties the hospital services to anesthesia services, which says, well, if you're going to use my operating room, you have to use my anesthesia, but the patients no longer would have a choice, and neither would the surgeons. They would take whatever anesthesia services are available but that would exclude me. And since there was consumer damages because I was providing services that were of the same quality, but I was offering different services that the the patients could have, OB and regional anesthesia, that the physicians were not providing. So the CRNA, I am the only one as a provider of labor and epidurals and other techniques. And during the pretrial discovery, the hospital produced a letter from the physician anesthesiologist that they were now increasing their charges by 10% to cover the cost of litigation. Neither the hospitals or the physicians produced any documents that were in the folder. Wait just wow. a minute now. They wow. really, there was something in writing saying they were going to increase their prices by 10%? Is that Yes. Holy cow, he's so stupid. When they got further further into this, Sharon, since every patient was being monitored with an EKG in the operating room, Uh they charged their patients an extra fee for, quote, reading EKG during procedures. Oh, my God. 
God. Wow. It's not part of your anesthetic, but we're going to no, read no, the EKG. No. <laughs> and Taft, this, uh, this well, really does sound like, you know, things that go on today, but no one else has found the folder. No. You know. We're um, looking for a folder. It, it's very interesting. So, Taft, how do you... I was in, go ahead. I was instructed when I talked to attorneys that the best defense in the antitrust case is a paper shredder. <laughs> we had papers already. Wow. What, what a godsend that was for you to find that folder. That was the best call you ever took, wasn't it? It was. It was. <laughs> I mean, because we otherwise, we would, it would just have been their word against our word. Yeah. And, a, you know, it, it never would have been able to go to court because we didn't have any documentation. Wow. Sounds like some of the politics really of today's time. It's antitrust cases that it's not a circumstantial case. And many things went, say, price fixing, and a bunch of people all get together. They're going to raise prices. The only circumstantial evidence is you had that at the same time, all of them decided to raise their prices. Right. Right. So then the jury has to decide, is it logical that they had a meeting about that? Lori, it sounds like you, you, you're almost an expert in this. <laughs> Listen at you. I mean, you must have spent countless hours studying this. I did. But it was wow. fun. So I met how, a lot of nice people. So. <laughs> how, how do you choose, you know, legal representation for a case like this? I mean, obviously, this took a long time. I'm sure it cost a lot of money. It was very complex. How, how do you choose someone to help you? Well, you know, we had contacted some, some friends who were attorneys and said, you know, who is the best attorney in Montana? that could represent us that also has experience in in federal cases and there was a law firm by the name of poor roth and robinson with poor roth and robinson and we talked to them but we knew right up front that we couldn't afford to pay attorneys two hundred dollars an hour it just wasn't wasn't able to do this the only way we could do it was if the law firm was willing to do it on a contingency basis fee for legal fees. And most people don't understand that contingency means fee means that they'll keep track of their hours spent defending the case or prosecuting the case, but you're responsible for everything else. You're responsible for all of the cost of depositions, for travel, for food, for copying expenses and when each one of the defendants would eventually have their own legal representation that meant that every time there was a conference for example a settlement conference we would have to pay for our attorneys to fly to portland put them up in a hotel pay for all their food and whatever else expenses were involved there We'd have to pay for all a stenographer to do the depositions. And so when you say we're going to do a contingency fee, you have to figure out what are these out-of-pocket costs mm. because it's outstanding. One, one week we got to cost a charge of $2,500 in copying fees. Wow. Excuse me, that was $25,000. 25000 oh, oh, There's a big difference between $2,500 yeah, and $25,000. Oh, my God. So every time they flew out there, what was the cost, give or take, Lori? Oh, no, every time they flew out, we were, lo- we were looking between five and $10,000. Oh, my God. And this because is... Because now we had two attorneys in Montana 
that were the same firm representing us. We also had an antitrust attorney, which was uh, in Washington, D.C. So when there were, since you were involved those, you had to play, send all of those out, plus Lori and I to go out there. And then all the expenses involved, it got super, super expensive. Oh, my gosh. Uh, now, this was in the 70s, right? Or, yes. Okay. So, well, this yeah. time, now it was in 1980. Okay, wow. Uh, 1980. And what were lawyers' fees at that time? I mean, I have a daughter who's an attorney. I have to play nice, nice about uh, attorneys. But I think that the uh, regular attorney fees were maybe like 150 They're probably less in Montana. I know that antitrust attorneys, because we had gone to some conferences and met antitrust attorneys, their fees were around $500 an hour. Wow. Oh, my God. And wow. uh, that's all 80, of our attorneys were on a contingency fee. Uh, our antitrust attorney was the person that I had worked with at the FTC in D.C. Mm-hmm. And she had left. I called to see who we could get. And they were waiting for me. They said, oh, Montana, Montana. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they said, Susan's left. She's in private practice. It would be unethical for her to contact you. Oh, but if you okay. want to contact her, here's her address, her phone number, <laughs> and she was on on board. She was on board on a contingency. Well, I bet with the folder, she's <laughs> who mm-hmm. wouldn't be on board. So yeah. a lot of things were going on at that time. It sounds like so. How important was other cases at the time, such as the bond versus enemy hospital? Sandy's talked about that in the past, and and I hope that AANA kind of helped you out. And I understand the late great Ira Gunn was instrumental <laughs> with you guys also, whom I did get to meet beforehand, I'm, I'm lucky to say. So if you can just give us some stories, background stories there. You know, we love the background stories here. The Bond case um, was filed in California. That's the Ninth Circuit. We were in Montana. And so they were ahead of us in the case. And Bond had been an independent contractor at this hospital. He was replaced by an MDA. He um, I don't really know the contract arrangement, but he filed an antitrust action. Mm-hmm. And that case was dismissed very early in because uh, the defendant made the argument, which was accepted by the court, that CRNAs and MDAs are not competitors. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and Bon appealed to the Ninth Circuit. At that time, the AANA did not know we had a case going. And it was essential that we got input into the amicus brief that they were writing in the bond case. So I took our antitrust attorney, we went up and met the board, and she drafted the amicus brief. And it was based on the antitrust principle of cross-elasticity of demand, which Mm -hmm. means (laughs) products and services don't have to be the same if they're interchangeable in the eyes of the consumer, for example. There's aluminum foil and wax paper and Ziploc bags, and mm-hmm. they're all food wrap. Right. Mm-hmm. The consumer gets to choose what they want to do. The brief was filed in bond, and the Ninth Circuit uh, reestablished the case and recognized that CNAs and MDs are competitors. And then, But bond later lost that case because he only had 10% market share. The hospital just uh, did not dominate the market. Mm-hmm. At the time... We were there, the ANA board. Um, 
offered us a $20,000 um, loan at 7%. And normally we probably would not have taken the loan, but we just had that $25,000 <laughs> bill that we got for photostat and things. <laughs> and so we took the bill. And then on the advice of legal counsel, uh, they advised, don't repay that too fast. Let that 7% run. So mm-hmm. we did. Another litigation that was of interest to us uh, personally was Hyde versus Jefferson Parish, case down in Louisiana. The hospital had a longstanding uh, exclusive contract with four anesthesiologists, and they supervised the 12 hospitals, uh, nurse anesthetists, and it was a good arrangement working well. A Dr. Hyde, who worked at another hospital in the same parish, applied for staff privileges. And he was granted medical staff privileges, but denied anesthesia privileges because of the exclusive he sued under the antitrust laws. And at trial, the market uh, the hospital won the case. The exclusive was legal. Basically, the hospital only had 30% market share. Mm-hmm. So 70% of the people, if they didn't like it, you know, they were already somewhere going else. somewhere else. <laughs> and so you, the consumer was not... Um, that they had a choice. What interests us about the case is while all these antitrust cases against the hospital exclusive contract had never been won, the ASA developed a ethical guideline that was kind of a anti-exclusive guideline, which said that it was unethical for uh, an anesthesiologist to participate in a contract that would prohibit other otherwise qualified anesthesiologists from obtaining anesthesia privileges. So at the, before we filed suit, we were pretty certain that the ASA was not going to get involved in our case. And we expected that uh, the Hyde case was appealed at the circuit court. The circuit court said that it was a per se violation, which I really don't understand how it could be because there was such limited market share. It went to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court reversed and declared the contract legal. Mm-hmm. And in law, if if you have it, we were interested in Hyde because Hyde represented all the cases where the challenge had failed. And you can use that case to support your case if you have a different set of facts. And we had a different set of facts. So Hyde was of interest to us. When the... St. Peter's exclusive contract went into effect in mid-July in 1980. Uh, both Tafford and the MDA, Dr. David Bosler, were excluded. The next day, the uh, anesthesiologists in the hospital were served with notice that an antitrust action in state court had been filed by Oltz and Bosler. The hospital immediately reinstated Dr. Bosler's anesthesia privileges. And he worked, and he continued to work and give anesthesia outside the exclusive contract. And though, um, at, and at trial, and at which occurred in federal court, because we later filed in federal court, Dr. Bossler was a witness for TAF, and so were numerous of the surgeons that he had worked with. I bet it was tense in that operating room. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Bossler is still working there. Well, Taff, you're he still... He care. He was, he was a good guy. He, he showed up in his suit and his bright red socks. He was the head of the party. <laughs> so now Taff yeah. is still working there during all of this, too? He was until... Mid-July, 1980. 1980. Oh and he was. Oh, he had to leave then. 
Oh my God! Saddest day when you have to go down and push your anesthesia machine out the hospital <laughs> and load it up when you knew, you know, I had cases scheduled, you know, a month out for elective uh-huh. procedures, and uh, all of a sudden those patients no longer had a choice. They had to take whatever anesthesia was available. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Okay, and Taff, had, uh, too, had talked to Aragon, bring her in. Uh, I had the great pleasure of meeting her the first time I went to the uh, NAANA annual convention with my green beanie, and she pulled me into a taxi cab and gave me a, fried, uh, a ride, and a uh, fantastic lady. And he'd had a lot of conversations with her during the trial. She agreed to come out. The role that I played at trial, I couldn't sit with Taff, and I wasn't part of the case. And so I would be at the back of the courtroom and be a gopher for the mm-hmm. attorneys. But my real job was to watch the jury and watch their body language. Mm-hmm. And when Ira got on the stand, she was very well accepted. There were military men, and I think they were restricting the urge to stand up and salute. <laughs> and the entire jury, they were leaning forward, arms open, you know, totally attentive, nodding in agreement as she talked about anesthesia mm. and um, our training and our background. And she was really a very, very good week. Uh, so, Lori, you were you were a Dr. Phil before Dr. Phil came about. You know, that's what Dr. <laughs> Phil did was help select jurors, and he would watch uh-huh. them. So you could have been on TV. You could have been your very <laughs> oh, own Dr. Was, Phil. You'd be yeah, Dr. Lori. Oh, before, you, before you select those jurors, you'd be very careful about what colors they're wearing, too. Really? Oh. That was oh. another little thing I learned about. <laughs> tell us. Tell us what colors. What colors do green. you want? That's exactly what green Steve wants. And you don't want a banker. Ah. And I love, my favorite color is green, so I love it. But there are things about jury selection. So well, why wouldn't you want a banker? Because they're used to refusing money requests. Oh. Ah. Ah. <laughs> wow. Interesting. That's psychological. Yeah, well, uh-huh. Steve Mund yeah. had told us in a previous podcast, he talked about doing depositions, and yeah. he said to wear green. Because you're more, seen as more trustworthy. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you're also kind of skinny with the money. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Mask today. We had a bit too much content to just fit into one episode. But join us next week to hear the rest of Taft's story, along with surprising turn of events that ultimately determine the outcome of the case. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And please leave us comments, of course, as Jeremy likes to say, only if they're positive. (laughs) We'll talk to you next time on Beyond the Mask. Hi, everybody. This is Jeremy. Remember back in episode 45 when my co-hosts Sharon Pierce and Kimberly Gordon talked about the candidate school for nurses that they're piloting at Yale for May of 2020. The application process opened on January 1st. If you're a nurse or a nurse anesthetist and interested in running for elected office, or even if you're interested in managing another nurse's campaign, you will not want to miss this opportunity. As the first candidate school for nurses in the country, you will want to be in the inaugural class. Just go to the Yale Nursing website and search Candidate School for Nurses and apply today. 
Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.